Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Lauren Lawson, who is an ecologist, conservation scientist, and PhD candidate at the University of Toronto. Lawson's area of study is unique and deeply rooted in a fundamental conflict of modern life, protecting our water and protecting our people. The weather has been doing a pretty good job reminding us this past week that winter is dangerous, especially when driving on snowy and icy streets. That's why we salt. But the evidence is building that we salt our roads too much, and it's had a profoundly negative impact on our rivers and streams. So are we sacrificing our water quality for winter road safety? And is there a way that we can have both at the same time? Matters of Salt is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. We've probably had more winter weather in the last week than we've had in the rest of February and the entire month of January combined. It's not just the snow, but the ice, and the ice pellets, and freezing rain, and all that fell after the snow, which caked side roads, sidewalks, and driveways alike. How did your neighbors respond to that? How did you respond? I bet you have a big bag of road salt in the basement, or in the closet, or in the garage, or perhaps you live in a condo where there's probably a box or several boxes filled with the magic cure sodium and chloride. How much salt did you use? I bet you it was more than the one tablespoon of salt for one meter square area that is recommended by the city of Guelph. Why does this matter? It was about two years ago that a study was released in the journal Facets that found levels of salt in rivers and streams exceeded federal exposure guidelines in 89% of samples from four different watersheds in the greater Toronto area, and that also one-third of the study sites showed that one-quarter of all species would be impacted by the concentrations. The real concerning part, though, was that these samples were taken in the proverbial dog days of summer, late July and August. If salt levels are hitting dangerous levels in summer, what must they look like in the winter when the salt is going down fast and furiously to keep up with winter maintenance? Or what happens in a winter like this, where we get a storm, we lay down the salt, and then we watch it wash away with a rise in temperatures and then melting and then rain... And then it's all gone, and we start the process all over again. Answering those and other questions is why Lauren Lawson is here for this week's episode of the Guelph Politicast. Lawson will talk about our history with road salt, why high salt levels are so dangerous to waterways and animal life, and why it's also dangerous to human beings as well. We will also discuss the types of animal life impacted by those high salt levels, why the salt levels are so surprisingly high in the summer, and whether or not the damage to the environment is reversible. And finally, we will talk about best salt management practices, the potential alternatives to salt for winter road maintenance, and how Lawson made this problem her academic life's work. So I caught up with Lauren Lawson late last week via Zoom. Okay, uh, Lauren Lawson, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, to begin with, and you know, this may be beyond your field of research, uh, but it's—I feel like it's a general question, a good place to start. But um, how long have we been using salt to clear our roadways? That's a good question. So we've actually been using salt broadly in North America since the 1950s. 
And, you know, since the 1950s, it's really astronomically increased um, all across North America. And we have used it widely over Canada, tracking around the same time. And the first place that salt was actually used was actually in New Hampshire, Mm. um, which is interesting. Okay, good. So somebody will win that Trivial Pursuit question in the future. Um, (laughs) I I guess hearing that it started in the 50s, I guess we can sort of make a broad assumption that using salt to make it easier to get around um, was also quite kind of cause and consequence of the the broadening of car culture that happened in post-war North America. Yeah, definitely. I think it um it comes with uh, the increased desire to get around quickly and safely and doing it by any means possible. Mm-hmm. So this this made me wonder as well because it it your area of research seems to um I w- I don't want to say come out of nowhere, but it seems to have <laughs> been like sort of topic of conversation the last few years that to to look at these this data you've developed and other scientists developed and said oh my goodness, look at the impact using all the salt has had. I'm curious if we're seeing a cumulative impact, sort of like the 60 years of, of, or I guess almost 70 years now of this salt use, or are we just like especially salty now in terms of our, our, our use? Like are, have we become more reckless or is this a, a cumulative <laughs> impact from all the salt use? That's a good question. So um with increases in you know roads and sidewalks and as we become more urban overall we are using more salt um however you bring up a good point about the idea of thinking about cumulative um an accumulation of salt because the way that salt moves through the environment is quite interesting to think about in that it can actually be stored within our soils and our groundwater which means that when we're seeing chloride concentrations now you know we're not seeing just our past winter we are seeing that cumulative effect through the years as you know, water takes a very long time to move through our soils as well as our groundwater systems. And that's part of what contributes to the fact that we're seeing higher chloride concentrations year round and not just in the winter time when salt's being put down. Mm-hmm. This may be a stupid question. <laughs> feel, free, feel free to tell me I, I'm not. When you say like water moves slowly, like if I at re- realizing you can't tell one drop of water from another but you know put if a wa- drop of water falls in let's say the aramosa river over here in guelph you know i guess how long till it reaches like a, a destination in one of the great lakes like when you're talking about how slow water moves through yeah. the system uh it's interesting to think about you know river flow versus lake flow and then mm-hmm. our groundwater groundwater is sort of this unseen water source that's becoming more increasingly recognized and the importance of how it can influence the rivers and the surface flow because the way that groundwater interacts with rivers is groundwater can be released into rivers, but rivers can also uh, put water into groundwater. So it's a bit Mm. of a two-way interaction. And this groundwater is what can really store uh, water for longer periods of time. Ah. It's what a groundwater can also be synonymous in some areas to like aquifers where it's just this pool of water that's moving very slowly and it can take hundreds of years for sometimes water to move through groundwater into rivers, into the great lakes, and then ultimately out the St. Lawrence. Does that make it especially hard to sort of track, I guess, theoretically. And I know that Toronto has tried to make some maneuvers to like reduce its salt use, but you know, right. 
a few kilometers away, you have Oakville or Vaughn or Mississauga, and maybe they are still salty as as salty as ever, so to speak. So I guess when you, when you're trying to look at this sample, um, if it's from like the Don River, the Humber River, it's it's not so conclusive to say that whether it's really salty or less salty, that would be the exclusive sort of, um, I, I guess, result of any intervention that the city of Toronto has done that, that it's hard to sort of pin down where the problem is. Yeah. So salt is, it's really a non-point source um, contaminant and pollutant because, you know, there's so many people using it and, I like to think of uh, salt users as there's the public users, like the cities and transportation agencies, but then you also have private users, which um, often use like per individual a lot more. Um, And you can somewhat track how much salt is being used just by looking at um, wells, for example. And, Mm. you know, what you would see in the Don River is probably a good um, estimation of at least the watershed of what feeds into the Don. But where it gets into being um, more concerning about those cumulative effects and understanding where concentrations are coming is, you know, if you look at all of Lake Ontario, there's so many rivers that feed into it. So it does become more complex at that level. And, you know, larger organizations like cities, they're doing a better job at tracking where they're putting salt down. Um, And touching back on what you said about earlier about a lot of information coming out in the last few years. Some of this information has been known since the early 2000s, mm. um, and those larger organizations are really working towards better practices. Does salt naturally occur in our waterways? It does, however, at very low concentration. So salt, it's an important component for most organisms just to live. Um, however, freshwater organisms, they exist at a very low salt level, um, mm-hmm. much lower than what we're seeing in most rivers as well as lakes. Hmm. Well, maybe it may be inappropriate to sort of like take this like one sort of aspect at a time or one sort of impact at a time, but we'll give it a shot. Um, <laughs> when, when we're talking about how salt affects the waterways themselves, what, what are those like sort of specific impact specific impacts when we talk about like over salt use and, and detecting high levels of salt in our water? Like how does that sort of present itself in our um, in, in our waterways? Yeah, so the way that we detect it, um, it can be detected in several ways. Um, A common way is just to take water samples and to do chemistry tests to understand, you know, what the uh, most common um, compounds are that have to do with salt. So most people talk about chloride um, because it's it's the most common component. And when you think about sodium chloride, you think about potassium chloride, magnesium chloride, all these different compounds. Chloride is the common culprit. So it can be used as a indicator of higher salt levels. Um, What we did within some of our research is we also looked at this other somewhat more easy to measure water quality parameter called conductivity of which you can estimate a chloride concentration from because Mm. to get specific chloride concentrations, it can take quite a lot of lab processing. So there are some other ways to get good estimates of what salt concentrations we are finding um, broadly within our watersheds. Is there a specific sort of type of animal or species of animal that is kind of more susceptible to salt pollution than others? So many freshwater organisms are susceptible just because they're adapted to such low concentrations. But I would definitely say that there is a hierarchy that's very organism dependent. So for example, um, 
various studies have looked at all different types of organisms ranging from frogs to amphibians to fish to little macroinvertebrates and plankton. They, they have seen impacts to some degree across the board. Um, it's also been found that freshwater mussels are quite susceptible. So any of those species that are usually um, kind of considered to be sensitive to environmental change can usually be lumped under the chloride sensitivity as well. Mm-hmm. I did read a narwhal thing that you contributed to, or mm-hmm. the, the reporter asked for for your insight and your expertise. The mussels, which um, seem to be one um, among some of the more susceptible in terms of the animal life, um, their function, and maybe you can talk a bit about this, is they, they do have a sort of this cleansing function in the waterways. And because salt, I guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, they're not able to process salt in the same way that they're able to process maybe other things that can be harmful to the waterways. And so this is kind of like an especially difficult red flashing light where if, you know, the muscles essentially acting as maybe a kind of, again, I'm not a scientist, so correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, but, you know, the muscles is essentially acting as kind of like an immune system for the waterways. That's, Mm -hmm. that's That's a real alarm bell, isn't it? Yeah, so one of the terms that's used for these types of organisms that start to disappear when contaminants of start entering systems or environmental stress starts to occur, they're called indicator species. So Mm -hmm. it means that they're indicating that there's some sort of change going on in the environment. And why that's important to look at is because it's important to note when some of the first organisms start to disappear, because you would think that at some point that might scale up to larger organisms that you might be of concern as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of those indicator species as well that we have a little bit of research, um, part of my thesis looks at is, it was covered in the narwhal as well, um, the red side dace as well. And that is a um, endangered minnow species found in Southern Ontario that we, we believe is impacted by chloride pollution. It's cited as being impacted by chloride pollution in most of the documents. However, there's really just not a lot of research looking at are they actually impacted and how might they be impacted? Hmm. I was thinking about this too, where I, I have seen, you know, reports about studies about plastic pollution, how, you know, plastic is turning up inside animal life who, you know, it, are ingested by human beings. And maybe they're, again, correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, but I, it, it made me wonder, you know, is, is it possible we're, you know, people who fish in our lakes and rivers, uh, you know, where there may be high salt content and that may be ingested by the fish there. Is there a, a danger to us? Like, are we getting saltier if we eat some of this, uh, these fish? That's a good question. Um, you know, by consuming fish directly, uh, we're not because since chloride and salt is a natural component of many ecosystems, although at low concentrations, it doesn't really um, accumulate up through tissues and that like, Mm. we're not worried about a big fish eating a smaller fish and then us eating that really big contaminated fish. But what's interesting about salt is that, you know, organisms and species aside, it can actually directly impact our drinking water. Mm. Um, And part of the Flint, Michigan water crisis was attributed to chloride contaminated water where it can actually contribute to leaching of lead out of pipes Right. Which is of serious concern for lead pipes, but on another aspect, it can also just change the taste of our water. So a lot of provinces actually have specific concentrations for chloride that 
start to tell you when your water is going to start to taste a little bit off. So those are concerns um, for those, anyone who has sodium sensitivities or hypertension, it could also be of concern. Right. So it's a little different than plastic in that it's not accumulating in the organisms and it could actually be directly impacting our water. I feel compelled to point out not to raise an alarm bell, but I mean, <laughs> there are places where that still do have lead pipes that, you know, they're, we're still getting around to replace that infrastructure. But I mean, here in Guelph, I know that there are still a few places that have lead mm. pipes. So it's, it's a real danger. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, I think it's, it's easy to think about the pictures of organisms being impacted, but it is right. also a direct impact up to us um, health wise. And then, it is really damaging to our infrastructure over the long term when you think about rusting of our vehicles um, as well as our actual roads and bridges. Right. There's a wear and tear. And so much is that, you know, salt keeps you from going off the road and into a ditch. You know, it, it all that soot and, and salt goes under the, the vehicle where uh, it can it can cause wear and tear as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's also a kind of pollution. I guess what I, what I want to get at too is I, uh, because it doesn't go up in the food chain, it doesn't mean there's no impact on us. Mm -hmm. Like it's hard to fish in a river where there's no fish because salt is so high. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is another kind of question I had too about, about the effects of this. Um, is, is the, is like the, the increased salt level, is that reversible? Like just imagine for a minute, like, and I know it's hard on a day like today as we're recording, but imagine we're not <laughs> using salt at all. We just stopped using salt today. Mm -hmm. do, do the trends start reversing themselves? They will over time. Um, it'll take a long time um, just because of that storage effect that I mentioned earlier, how our soils or our groundwater can store salt to some degree, but it is possible. Um, and it's also very, very possible for us to re reduce our use of salt. I personally and many researchers don't see in the foreseeable future, obviously, getting rid of salt. It is a public safety issue. Um, I think it would be ignorant for us or anyone to really say we can't have any salt because we do need to get places. Um, but that being said, there are tons of uh, best salt management practices that have been published that are being taken up by the large scale managers. And I personally think that there's a really big gap in that communication to the private citizen of what's actually the right thing to do and mm -hmm. it gets into the whole discussion of you know reducing and then alternatives as well um, and there's so much information out there that it's really hard to actually sift through what's best at the individual level so there's no kind of like i, I guess kind of one or two options that are are kind of obvious uh you know i I guess I think a lot of people think about these things as kind of ones and zeros. And we, we sort of have this with the issue of, of suntan lotion as well, where, mm -hmm. where we're kind of learning more and more that you go into the, you know, the ocean or even into a swimming pool, you're wearing your suntan lotion, it leaches off that goes into the water system that has this danger too. Well, you, you're not going to play around outside without wearing, you know, sunscreen mm -hmm. or any of that. Um, so, you know, there, there is, we're in a, an unusual position right now, I guess is what we're getting at, where we know there's a problem, but we don't know the obvious solution yet. Yeah. And I think that the obvious solution is reducing our use overall because less salt doesn't mean less safe. It right. can still be safe by using less. And also I think that, you know, at the private citizen level, that there's so many options that don't 
directly contains salt. So for example, on your own personal property, you can be using thing like, things like sand or even the leftover debris from a fireplace if you have one, just mm. to add a bit of traction. Because mm-hmm. it's not always about just getting rid of all the salt. Um, right. It's just about making a safe condition for you to get from your house to your car or walk your dog. The 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 ashes from the fireplace work? I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, so it's just about, um, it's similar to sand just in the idea that it can put a little bit of traction on the ground. Right. Okay. Which yeah, is really yeah. what what, when you're getting rid of salt... You're also adding traction because you can walk properly. It's less icy. But by adding a traction aid is what they're called, like sand. Some people have even tried using a little bit of like kitty litter um, Mm. or ashes. It can actually help give you that grip as you're walking. And of course, just being extra careful. Mm -hmm. There's also a cost component to a truck full of sand or a, a truck full of salt is usually the cheapest solution and the cheapest solution is usually the one that wins out if you're a city and you're buying enough salt to cover uh, a winter's worth of bad weather it is yeah for sure even at the private individual um, level so it'd be great if that we could see some sort of incentives going towards uh, better salt management practices and getting back to that city level i think it's really interesting to touch upon to that just difference between large-scale users and small-scale users in that Many cities and large cities do are supposed to be adhering to the uh, salt management practices set out by the federal government. Mm-hmm. So many of them are um, making better choices when it comes to how much should be put down, um, when to actually put it down, because there's no reason to salt if it's going to be one degrees or two degrees out. Right. Um, and then also where to put it down as well and how much. Right. This is kind of, and this next question is, we, we talked a bit about this when we were emailing back and forth, but it, this is something that really kind of clicked with me is the winter we've had this year where it's, we've gotten a, a snowstorm and we do the, do the things that we do and we respond to a snowstorm. And then the next week it's one, two degrees and it starts raining and it, it clears everything away. And it seems like the snow never happened. And then two mm-hmm. weeks later, it snows all over again. And obviously this is kind of, it, it seems like it's kind of symptomatic of climate change. So I guess from from your point of view as the expert, um, are we are is this kind of a more dangerous situation where we, we're kind of like dumping the salt, it gets washed away, you dump it again, it gets washed away. Is is you know, are are is, is this kind of a as dangerous or even maybe more dangerous than sort of how we typically handle these winter maintenance issues? Yeah, I think that um yeah, it could potentially be much more dangerous through time if uh, salt practice, like salt, but like better management practices are not closely paid attention to mm. because of this effect of the melting or raining and then washing the snow away. And I like to consider salt as one of those out of sight, out of mind pollutants, because mm. as soon as it washes away, most people don't think about it. Mm-hmm. You only think about it when it's in front of you covering your sidewalk or you have to put boots on your dogs so they don't hurt their paws. <laughs> and I think that um, this idea of the freeze thaws and the likelihood of this increasing in the next couple of decades, if if better management practice aren't closely paid attention to in that understanding the exact temperatures that are needed when salt is needed um, and how quickly weather patterns can change then we will end up seeing an increase in salt contamination. And as you said, there's, I mean, there's two sides of the coin when it comes to these freeze thaw events, you can have Mm -hmm. a rain and you can also have just snow melting. Mm -hmm. And if you actually think about 
the way that that affects salt, they are a bit different in that if snow is melting, you're likely going to have a big rush of salt coming in. But if rain is happening as well onto the salt, there could be some sort of um, dilution effect. Mm -hmm. So actually making it somewhat less salty. But the problem lies in when whether it's snow, melt, snow, melt, more salt in between, and people not realizing that there's tons left over that's being washed into the water. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is asked, we, we've kind of already answered this, but it, it, just for my own curiosity, the, the big study that you published a couple of years ago, um, where you took the several hundred samples from all the rivers, you did that in the summer. And mm-hmm. the, that paint, you know, it painted a picture of like, we have very, very high salt content. And it's like, well, when you're collecting water in July and August, that's as far as you can get from when that salt was laid down before you start getting to the point where it, it gets laid down again. So I'm curious if we were to go out and take a water sample next week. And again, this may be given some of the things we talked about with the movement of water, but you know, would, if we took those samples in like February, March, would we see higher concentrations? Yeah, we would. Um, just because of the fact that we're putting salt down recently and some of our research that I'm uh, looking at our results now and starting to write up actually includes having longer term log data loggers in the rivers mm-hmm. in sites where we know that um, the endangered minnow species that I mentioned earlier, the red side dace exists. And we're actually looking at how those concentrations change over time throughout the year and those actually measure salt concentrations every 15 minutes so we're able to see that fine scale pattern of how chloride is might be impacting a habitat throughout the year and there's a really great um, source in credit valley conservation authority they actually have data loggers all throughout their watershed where you can actually look at the live concentration. So if I were to pull it up right now, for example, I could see in the Credit River and that's many tributaries, what the exact chloride concentration was a half hour ago. Mm. And what's interesting to do is after a big storm, actually look at those concentrations and they're usually high already and then they spike up. Interesting. Yeah, because just hearing you talk about that, I was I was thinking as you were talking, um, is could this be a thing where in order to sort of get a better handle on this, you know, I'm I, again I'm thinking about in the summertime when we test or I not me we me personally, <laughs> but you know, when public health tests, mm-hmm. you know, the the, the stormwater drains for, you know, uh, mosquito larvae who may carry West Nile. Is that something like in the, the not too distant future where we're sort of going out and putting in like putting in these monitors in different places and you know, I guess being more on top of the the testing for the salt levels, I, I guess, as a barometer of where we're going with this issue. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because in the Ontario government has been testing salt and chloride concentrations for the last, oh gosh, I think it's been 40 years. And we have some of that data included in the paper that we published looking at how it's increasing over time. But those those samples are what we call point samples and that Mm. they're doing sort of what we did where you go out, you go into the river, you take a sample and you bring it back to your lab and you're not getting looking at those fine scale differences that could happen sometimes within a day. So it'd be great to see more long-term data loggers. However, they are expensive. So there's certainly a trade-off in how many you can have. Mm -hmm. So it'd be great to see those also being used with this grab sample approach and, 
like I said, Credit Valley Conservation has really paved the way in having numerous water quality sampling stations across their watershed where you can look at all sorts of different water quality parameters live. Mm-hmm. And it, it is very expensive, though, to implement. A lot of rivers and streams in Ontario. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. How did you get into this? Why? Why? How did how did you make this your area of research? But how did you get hooked? Yeah, so I uh, started my PhD with Don Jackson, my supervisor, and um, I knew I wanted to work on a issue surrounding urbanization because I just think it's really fascinating and important to make sure that in the context of urbanization, we're still thinking of the environment, how we're impacting the environment, but also how we can lessen our impact. That's my dog. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, chloride came up as a topic of interest and we just fleshed out some ideas and the study that we published a couple of years ago, that was the first project that I did during mm-hmm. my grad work over the summer that I started. Mm. Well, I I, I kind of want to leave people with some uh, the, the feeling that uh, we're not doom and gloom here, that mm-hmm. you know, people can take action. So, I mean, in, in sort of my own life and sort of ma- managing my own little world when I'm you know, doing winter maintenance on my property, my sidewalk, my porch, you know, my driveway, I guess, you know, what, what's kind of like the best advice um, for people if they want to be safe, but also be environmentally sound. Yeah. So there's many little tips and tricks that you can use for better ice management on your property. One of the first ones is when it comes to snow and ice shovel as much as possible and break up as much as ice as possible of, before you actually put any type of de-icing agents or traction aids down. Um, another example would be to, if you have any downspouts on your property, uh, like gutters, make sure that they're not directed towards your driveway or your mm-hmm. pathways, make sure that they're going into yards. Mm-hmm. Other um, tips that I have are to use the right amount. And a good rule of thumb is if you can picture a city sidewalk slab, you should be using about a pill bottle's worth of salt to cover okay. that entire slab. Okay. So that's a good visualization for approximately how much you should use. And then the biggest thing is also just trying to use the right amount and use it only in the areas that you really need to use it. Um, I recently gave a talk last week too for Watersheds Canada, where I outline a lot of these tips. So I can share those links with you as well. And they have a couple yeah. handouts um, that give some more tips and uh, tricks for private property as well as businesses, what they can do to think about salt in a better way and how we can reduce how much we're using while still mm-hmm. having safe conditions. I hope my neighbor's listening because he basically <laughs> uses a, like a beer stout full of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think a big part of it too. One of my last tips is like talking about the issue of salt. Mm-hmm. So I, I've personally done it. Of course, like a lot of my thinking revolves around salt, but a lot of the businesses that I frequent, if I see them over salting, I'll, I'll go in and talk to them about it. And just ask why and share a few tips. And if you have good relationships with your neighbors and friends, usually salt isn't too um, an off limit, too much of an off limits topic, <laughs> as long as you're not uh, t- telling them what to do versus discussing right. the topic in general. So it's really good just to talk about the issue in general and look at it from a sometimes a cost saving perspective too. use less. Right. You, have to buy, you don't have to buy as much uh, versus just worry about the environment. That's right. Yeah. Um, yet. I feel compelled to add a yet to the <laughs> sensitive topic of conversation yet. Uh, but we'll see what happens. But um, Lauren, 
I, I appreciate all your great advice and uh, your insights and your expertise today. So I, I hope uh, people take it to heart and maybe we can be less salty as yes. in, in the winters to come. But <laughs> thanks for coming on the show today. No worries. Thanks for having me on. And once again, that was Lauren Lawson. In the show notes, you can follow the links to a webinar that Lawson hosted for Watershed Canada, plus an info sheet with facts and information about proper and sustainable use of road salt. You can also find the City of Guelph's own salt management plan on the city's website, and you can follow Lawson on Twitter at Lauren LG Lawson or through her website, LawsonLauren.wordpress.com. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics, Ed Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Source's Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram or send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we will see you next time.